All right, so we're in Summer Psalms. This is um, what we do every summer at Springbrook because it's, it gives us an opportunity to have a kind of a week-by-week basis of, of sermons. We know people are in and out throughout the summer. That's totally cool. We get it. Um, and so this lets us kind of have a, a tethered sermon series in one book, but every sermon stands alone because every psalm that we tackle stands alone. So, so it's kind of a, the best of both worlds there for the summer. Um, and today, our assigned text, and I say assigned because we just plucked psalms out of a cup and decided that's the order we're going to preach them. And so Psalm 136 is where we're at today. And I'm excited for this one. This psalm actually is, is uh, very repetitive. Okay, you'll, you'll see that if you haven't already, if you weren't here for the call to worship where we read it. Um, and, and there's a real uh, primary point in this psalm. And that is to draw our hearts to gratitude. That's really the point, is to call us to give thanks. The psalm starts there by telling us three times in the first three verses to give thanks. And then it closes with one last reminder at the end of the psalm to give thanks. That is the point of the psalm, is to give thanks and to, to help us move towards gratitude in our, in our lives. The Bible talks about giving thanks really all throughout it. Um, the people of Israel in the Old Testament were um, disciplined for failing to give thanks to the Lord. As Christians today, we are called by, by the Lord Jesus to give thanks. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances to give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Our, our hearts are meant to be drawn into gratitude and um, this psalm in particular helps to get us there. Um, the question we have to answer, really a couple questions we need to answer is, well, why should we give thanks? And then how can we give thanks in all circumstances? And I think that's where the psalm ultimately takes us and shows us. Certainly, the why is answered for us. The, the answer to the question, why give thanks, is answered very repetitively in every verse with one line, for or because his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times in this psalm, we are told that his steadfast love, God's steadfast love endures forever. And that's the reason why we can give thanks in all circumstances. Because our circumstances change. They, they falter and they, they shift. And sometimes there's good things and sometimes there's bad things. But the steadiness and endurance of God's love is eternal. So regardless of the shifting and shaking ground around us, culturally, personally, politically, economically, whatever, whatever shifts and shakes around us, what doesn't shake, what doesn't change is that his steadfast love endures forever. And that's what's drilled into our heads through this psalm. 26 times we're told this. So buckle up. We're going we're gonna to see it again and again and again. But let's, let's unpack this because the 
The, the psalm begins in the first three verses by calling us to an action, to give thanks. Look at, look at the verses. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. So here we see three times we're called on to give thanks. And each of these times, a different title for God is used. First is, in verse 1, is Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which you know that as you read your New Testament or you read your uh, English translation, you know when they're using the word Yahweh, because the translators have chosen to put that word in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, capital letters. So that's the clue. We see Yahweh being used first. Secondly, we see the word, the Hebrew word Adonai, which is translated as God. And then we see, excuse me, Elohim, sorry. Adonai is translated thirdly as Lord, but only capital L, lowercase O-R-D. So here, God's titles, God's names are used three different times, three different names for God. And uh, Spurgeon helps us here. I think he explains the significance of this pretty well. He says, By whatever name God is known, He is worthy of our highest praise. Whether it's the name referring to His self-existence, which is Yahweh, or the name relating to his covenant engagements, which is Elohim, or the name applying specifically to his rule and governorship, Adonai, in any and every capacity, let us praise him. He says, our praise will consist largely of the element of gratitude as we think of all he has done for us. So that's where we start Give thanks to the Lord. But the question is, is why? Why does this God deserve our thanks and our gratitude? And that's where the rest of the psalm takes us. And it takes us through basically three broad categories of God's work for us that should lead us to gratitude. The three ways that God displays his steadfast love to his people And that display of of, uh, love to us is what leads us to thankfulness. So let's look at each of them, right? Verse uh, 4 through 9 is the first kind of broad category here. Let's look at it. It says, To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. In in this section of the psalm, we're seeing the steadfast love the faithful, enduring love of God in that he is our creator. 
This is the work that he's done that should draw us, not in its entirety, but as in part of what he's done for us to gratitude, that he is our creator. That's clearly the theme of these, of these verses. The psalmist is bringing us back to the work of God in creation. In particular, he draws us to these massive, huge things that God has done. He starts in verse 4 by saying, To him who alone does great wonders. And then he unpacks what some of those wonders are. He made the heavens. And the heavens is a, a reference to the universe, to the sky above us. He made that by understanding. He spread out the earth above the waters. He made great lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The focus of this work of God's creation is on the the macro, the big, the huge, the massive things that God has made. The sun, the moon, the stars, things so far beyond our reach. And that's where we're drawn to. Now, we could talk about God's creation of the small things, too. And we should, and we should think about that. That's just as incredible, just as uh, amazing. But God, in this psalm, is being drawn, our hearts are being drawn to God's massive work, his wonders, these huge things. And what's, what's even more humbling about this is that if God is the God who creates the heavens and the earth, these things that are so much bigger than us, that we are so tiny in comparison to, how humbling is it that God would look at us and care for us and show his steadfast love to us. These massive solar bodies that are literally forever beyond our reach in a universe that is so massive that we can't even fully know how large it is. That God who made those things with understanding, with awareness, with power, with wonder, actually cares about us. Every single time we're drawn to these massive things, we're also reminded that his steadfast love endures forever. His love for what or who? For us, right? For us. Even though God could have just turned away from us and said, yeah, I'm just going to focus on the, the really cool big things that I made. Instead, he turns his hearts towards us. That should ultimately draw our hearts towards gratitude for what he has done. It should turn us away from self-focus onto who God is. I think this is what the psalm does, and this is what really the whole Bible does as we think about God as our creator. It draws our hearts away from purely ourselves to something higher and more transcendent. And we're going to get into this towards the end here today, but I think that is really one of the primary problems of our society and culture today is that we have lost as generally, not every individual, but as a whole, we've lost transcendence. We've lost a sense of awe and wonder. And that's a danger because it just creates narcissism in us. The antidote for that, of course, is gratitude to a God who created us and is larger than us. I was reminded of, of Rick Warren's words. Uh, he wrote a, a book called 
the Purpose Driven Life a number of years ago, probably 20 years ago now. But he has one paragraph in there that I think is worth the price of the book. So I'll give it to you and then you don't have to buy the book. But (laughs) here's the quote. He says, you are not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He wanted you alive and he created you for a purpose. Focusing on yourself will never reveal your real purpose. Hear that? Focusing on yourself will never reveal your real purpose. You were made by God and for God, and until you understand that, life will never make sense. Only in God do we discover our origin, our identity, our, uh, our meaning, our purpose, our significance, and our destiny. That is super helpful, I think. Because that's really where this is taking us, away from ourselves onto God and his goodness, who alone does great wonders. He created so many things that we can see and things we can't see. And that's humbling and should lead us to gratitude. Okay, secondly, the second work of God that displays his steadfast love. Look at verse 10 through 16. It says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led the people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, here we're seeing our attention turned from the creation of the world to now the second book of the Bible, which is the book of Exodus, which talks about God's specific work of redeeming a people for himself. So first we see God as our creator, and secondly here we're seeing God as our redeemer. That word redeemer I know is kind of ubiquitous in the church world, but it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us if we're not in the context of the church world. And let me explain quickly what a redeemer is. It's, it's simply someone who buys back or buys somebody's freedom, sets them free. And that is the story of the Exodus, right? The people of Israel had been brought down to Egypt due to a, a famine at the end of Genesis. Joseph, which we, talk, he talk, we talked about Joseph last Sunday a bit. Joseph is placed in Egypt um, by being sold into slavery down there, eventually being freed, uh, being given the rank of basically the prime minister under Pharaoh. And he kept the people alive because of his, the wisdom God gave him to preserve the food that they needed to weather a famine. So eventually his own family comes down to Egypt because this is where the food is. And they settle there. And they, as you read the story, we find out they settle in Egypt. They're given a bunch of land. They're allowed to take care of their herds of sheep. And, and as time goes on, you get into the book of Exodus and the new Pharaoh doesn't like this arrangement. He, he's afraid that they've multiplied too much. There's too many of them. He's concerned about a political alliance between them and one of his enemies. 
And so he enslaves them. And he enslaves them for hundreds of years. God then raises up a man named Moses who goes into um, the, the Pharaoh's home, was raised there actually, left for 40 years, but comes back and um, begins to deliver God's message to set his people free. So that's what this passage is drawing our hearts back to. It starts with, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now that sounds really harsh if we read it out of context and not understanding the history here. Striking down of the firstborn was the tenth and final plague that God brought upon the people of Egypt and Pharaoh specifically um, because of his unwillingness to set his people free. God gave nine additional warnings before that moment for Pharaoh to say, yes, I'll let your people go. And he just continued to harden his heart. And so this harsh reality of striking down the firstborn was the final straw. And God did it because he loved his people and set them free through it. He then brings Israel out from Egypt, verse 11. Verse 12, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Verse 13, he divided the Red Sea in two so that they could pass through the midst of it. And Pharaoh and his host, his army, went into the, the sea and were swallowed up by it. And then he led, God, God led his people through the wilderness for 40 years. All of this, this story from the Old Testament is a prototype of what God would do for us ultimately in Jesus. That's what we need to understand. It's that God did these things. They happened, but they were, they were shadows of the substance that would be found in Christ. Jesus Christ comes into the world to redeem his people forever. Not just from a national enemy like Egypt, but from our ultimate enemies of sin and Satan's tyranny. Paul talks about this in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, where he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the key. Who gave himself for us, gave himself for us on the cross to redeem us. So there's the language of the Exodus, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we're, there we see Jesus is the redeemer that we ultimately need to deliver us from, from our slavery to sin and deliver us and give us freedom. And so here the psalmist back in 136 is reminding us of God's work as our redeemer, as our deliverer, as our savior. And, th and that is massively why we ought to give thanks to him. His steadfast love is proven at the cross. Thirdly, verse 17 through 26 is, a, is another category of what God does through his steadfast love to draw our hearts to gratitude. It says this, To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here's the third storyline in this. We see God as our creator. We see God as our redeemer. And thirdly here, we see God as our peace. Here, this, this section of the psalm looks back again on a story that, of Israel's history, which we read about primarily in Joshua and Judges, a little bit into 1 Samuel as well, but mostly Joshua and Judges. It's looking back on God delivering his people into a promised land, a land that he gave them as a heritage, as, a, as an inheritance. But again, this storyline of the Bible is a prototype of what uh, God would ultimately do for us. The emphasis on the promised land is on the issue of rest and peace. That God promised to give his people after generations of slavery, after a generation of wandering in the wilderness, he says, I'm going to give you a place and this is where you're going to dwell and live in safety and security and peace. And it took a long time to get there because there were other nations and other kings that had to be removed. And I know that sounds wild to our 21st century sentimentality, but it is just the reality of the world for most of its history. People take things and the stronger gets it, right? That is, you may not like it, but that is just how it works. Um, And so here you have God doing this, striking down mighty kings, names a couple of them, Sihon and Og, and just gives us these samples of the story of the promised land. But ultimately, this whole storyline of the promised land in the Old Testament draws our hearts to the work of God in delivering us and giving us rest and peace in him uh, through Jesus. We, we can read about that in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, and you can read about that in Colossians chapter one and two, but I'll just give you a quick sample of Colossians one and two. Uh, And then we'll just highlight this for a moment. It says um, in verse 15, we'll start here. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He meaning Jesus. This is who we're talking about. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And so here you're seeing God as creator through Jesus. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's a sustainer as well. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross, making peace through his blood on the cross. He reconciled us to himself through, through the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So we're seeing this language of being brought into peace with God through Jesus. That is why we can give thanks and show our gratitude because his steadfast love endures forever in creating us, in redeeming us, and delivering us to himself in peace. Okay, so God has done all these things for us. The passage walks us through it. He does these things because his steadfast love endures forever. He demonstrates that love clearly in a million different ways as well. But let's apply this. Let's try to actually take this reality and go somewhere with it. The first thing I want to highlight is this, and I've mentioned it, but 26 times this psalm tells us the same thing. For his steadfast love endures forever. Why the repetition? Well, I I actually think the answer is pretty obvious. Um, The answer is we forget. Right? We forget. We know it intellectually. I'm not saying that we're like goldfish that have a three-second memory or something. We know it intellectually. We might understand it to some degree, but we actually forget it in our day-to-day lives. That's why we need the reminder. That's why it's repeated over and over and over again. That's why on one level we come to church every Sunday because every Sunday is a reset of the week and we get to hear again God's word. Dane Ortland reminds us of the importance of this when he says that it, everything that's in us is hardwired to believe that God's love could come to an end at any time. That it's not steadfast, but faltering, that God is like us. That's why the the Bible repeats this line, not just in this psalm, but all throughout, we are reminded of the steadfast love of God. Because everything in us, through our sin, is hardwired to believe that God is like us, and he's not. He's nothing like us. But because we think he is, we interpret him through our lens of life, which is we're fickle, we change, we make all kinds of bad decisions. And so we think, well, God might be like that too. Well, that's why this psalm is here, to tell us that that's not true. We also need to recognize that there are a number of ways we can sabotage ourselves in the ability to rest in gratitude in all circumstances because of his steadfast love. And I want to walk through a few reasons or a few ways that we can sabotage ourselves. I think there's at least three. There's probably many more, but there's three that I want to highlight. One is what, I would, what I'd refer to as spiritual nearsightedness. Secondly, spiritual amnesia. And thirdly, an overinflated sense of self. And this psalm actually it tackles all of these. 
Spiritual nearsightedness is when we, um, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. We have what's right in front of our face and we judge God's goodness and power through that present situation. So when things are going good, God gets praised from us. And when things are going poorly, we're flung into doubt. Spiritual nearsightedness is staring at something that's just right in front of you and not seeing the bigger picture. This is dangerous. It's dangerous because it calls into question God's goodness and power. It kills our hope and it produces a ton of fear, doubt, and despair. So this passage helps to correct us. It gives us corrective lenses. It shows us that there is actually not just what's in front of our face, but a much bigger God than we perceive of who will never leave us or forsake us. We need to remind ourselves of that. Spiritual nearsightedness fixates on our present problems. But a second way we sabotage ourselves is through spiritual amnesia. And I think this is the one that this psalm actually hits at the hardest. Spiritual amnesia is when we forget all that God has done in the past. And because we forget what God has done in the past, we doubt him in the present and we question him in the future. This is why the psalm, this psalm I think in particular, is so much more on this issue because in every, um, in every single passage here, in every single section, he looks backwards at what God has done through creation, through the Exodus, and through the promised land stories. He brings us back to these things. And the reason is, is because if we don't remember what God has done, we'll forget. That's what amnesia is. We won't have memory of it. And then we'll be tossed and turned by every present problem. And listen, we have the benefit that even the Old Testament saints didn't have. We have the benefit of being able to see the cross and empty tomb of Jesus as the proof that God is for us and that he truly does love us. That is the reality. We all just have to pivot back to, if if we're doubting God's love, do do we spin in that and just go crazy or do we look at the cross and go, yeah, actually the Bible tells me that God demonstrated his own love for us in this that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That's what we need to do. We got to continue to fight spiritual amnesia when we're doubting God's goodness and power. A final way I think we can sabotage ourselves, and I think this psalm does hit at it, particularly in the first section, is that we can, we can develop over time a, uh, an overinflated sense of self. Um, where we begin to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. Now, none of us would be pompous enough to say that we are, right? But we do somewhere deep down all believe that we are. We, we're at a point now where I think, I think just culturally, I don't know. I, I, again, I want to be careful not to be too, too broad here, but I think a lot of us just treat the world as if, if it's not me, it's boring. And, and that's why God here is described as the God who does wonders. 
you can't do wonders. I can't do wonders. Even on our best days, the, the most we could do is maybe have some smoke and mirrors. Like, look at this little trick I can do over here. We're not wonders. And, and I think we need to be reminded of the fact that God is so much bigger than us, so much better than us, eternally and permanently better than us. He's holy. And, and that he has done and continues to do incredible things. Things that we can only dream of doing and probably can't even dream of doing them because they're so incredible, our minds can't comprehend it. God truly is the center of everything, not us. And I know that everything in our world wants to contradict that. Everything in our sinful hearts wants to contradict that. We want to believe that we're the most important thing. Whatever whims we have in a given moment is the most important thing to be said. That everything's about us. And what that mentality does is it crushes gratitude. Because our eyes are totally inward. We need to get our eyes outward. I I said closer to the top of this that we need a sense of transcendence and awe. One of the ways we can get that is by being in nature because you can't deny that you're pretty unimpressive when you go into some of the spectacular things in the world. I just brought my boys to Yellowstone a few weeks ago. I'd never been there my first time. I don't know. I think they had fun, but it was great. There was no no technology involved in, in this situation. I made them look out the window um, in the car for 18 hours each way. And it was the greatest thing. We've actually done a number of cross-country trips where we make them look out the window because that's what's exciting. It's far more exciting than what's going on in these stupid little screens. Here's the thing. When you get outside of yourself and you see things you could never have dreamt of, much less create, and you know God did it, it it just draws your heart to go, wow, maybe I'm not all that. We need that. We need the Bible to give us that. We need the created world to give us that. We, We need to get there. And so I think by being put in front of God and who he is, we'll begin to deflate our sense of self. I'm not saying you need to look down on yourself. You have value and worth because God made you. That's not what humility is. Humility is not being crushing towards yourself, but it's putting yourself in the proper place, which is under God, under the Lord Jesus. Uh, Larry Osborne, again, uh, thriving in Babylon. I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it probably forever, Um, but great little book. Here's one thing he says that I think was helpful for this. He says that we can focus on what's going wrong or we can fix our thoughts on the cross, the empty tomb, and the plethora of blessings that we have to be thankful for. If we do, we'll end up filled with hope, confident, with optimism, which comes from knowing who's in charge and how everything will end up. Or we can choose to fixate on the personal and cultural problems that plague us. If we do, we'll end up like the children of Israel, frustrated, angry, and panicked 
even when God is about to provide a great deliverance. So the, the antidote to all of this is to give thanks. It's to practice gratitude. It's very hard to look at yourself as the biggest and best when you actually have to admit you didn't do much for yourself and you give thanks to your creator. That is the antidote to the poison of cynicism and despair that we may face. But gratitude doesn't come naturally to us, not to any of us, because that's why the psalm is here, right? We're told to give thanks to the Lord because it's not our natural impulse. So what we need to do is we need to grow in it. We need to, we need to work that muscle to make it stronger. And the way to do that is by being intentional, to actually think actively on a day-to-day basis and ask yourself a question and then answer that question. The question can be as simple as this, what kindness has God shown me today? And if you actually think about that question and, and try to answer it for the life that you live, you'll find that it's actually a lot that God has done to show you kindness today. Maybe you can do this around the dinner table with your family. Not saying you have to, right? You got to do what works best for you. We do this on Thanksgiving, which is a great holiday. I'm glad we do it as a culture. But one day a year to be thankful is pretty sad. Let's be thankful like every day. Right? We don't have to, I'm not saying we need to make this a, a rhythm every day or every moment, but we need to practice gratitude. And we need to teach our kids gratitude if we have them. We need to, we need to draw sinful hearts towards Jesus through his word. So it could be just ask yourself the question and spend a few moments away from your devices, away from your distractions and think about what God has done for you. That will help you grow in gratitude. Maybe it's keeping a journal of the things you're thankful for. I'm I'm not a journaler. I'm not going to put that on you because I don't do it myself. But for some people, I think that's helpful. Right, whatever is the most helpful and realistic for you, put it into practice. Do something with this. And, and here's the thing. This is what's so great. I'm going to close it with this. If you're stumped for something that God has done for you today, you actually have an answer. 26 times you're given an answer that you can always give, which is what? His steadfast love endures forever. If you are literally having the worst day you have ever had and you can't think of anything else, you can recall that to your heart and mind. That no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how bad it may be, his steadfast love endures forever. One writer says it this way, beyond our failures, beyond our resentments, beyond our disgust with ourselves, beyond the love of any friend, Jesus Christ came for us and died for us. He secured the permanence and demonstrated the depths of God's heart of love for sinners. Jesus proves it. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. 
just thinking about those few words can um, draw us back, draw us out of ourselves. We pray you would do that for us, that you would help us to be intentional and thoughtful and, and grateful for what you've done for us. You've created us. You've saved us through Jesus. You've given us peace with you and a plethora of other things. Too many things to count for most of us. So would you help us, God, to be grateful to you today? We pray that you would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take some time to sing some songs. and.